Good morning. Welcome to our Sunday school here at First Baptist Church. And uh, once again, we're glad to have you joining with us. And uh, we are in a series called Streams in the Desert and uh, looking at different people who were affected by streams in the desert in the Bible. I want to remind you that we are having our morning service at 11 o'clock. And um, we opened up the church last Sunday for the first time, and I think it was 11 weeks where we had service, and we're planning on doing that again today for Sunday morning service. Sunday evening we'll be streaming. Now listen carefully, next week, next Sunday, we plan on having all three of our Sunday services in the building. And uh, so that'll be Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. We invite you to come, be a part of our church service. Now, if you're planning on coming, give us a call and let us know because we're having to deal with assigned seats or reserved seats, if you will, because of the social distancing issue. But we would love to have you with us and join us next Sunday, Sunday school morning service, evening service. I want you to open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. And we're having beautiful weather. Thank the Lord for it. And uh, my thermostat or the uh, temperature indicator in my automobile yesterday when I went home said it was 90 degrees and don't want to complain about it we've waited a long time for that just going to try to enjoy it but we have a beautiful day today and uh, now join with us as we look at numbers 21 we're going to look at the first nine verses and I want you to follow along with me numbers 21 verses 1 through 9 And when King Arad the Canaanite, which dwelled in the south, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities." And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. And they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormah. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass... He lived. And let's pray once again. Father, we come this morning and we come before you, a needy people. And our need this morning isn't anything that I can supply or any man can supply. We need to hear from heaven. We need that touch of the Holy Spirit in in our hearts once again. I thank you for the folks who are tuning into our Sunday school class and Lord, they're looking for something. They're wanting to be fed. And I pray that you'd help me as as your under-shepherd to feed them with truth from the Word of God. 
Now, as we look to the lesson, I pray that you would speak to hearts. And I pray that as we see these truths, that we would, we would see the need to, to change our lives and to model our lives after, after these great men of God that, that led like Moses. And I pray you would help me to have strength of voice this morning to bring the lesson like you would want me to. We do pray for the Clarks and the churches in New Jersey who are still under a ban, and we pray for your protection for them and your intercession for them that they might be able to open the church house without fear and without repercussions. So bless our time together this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over in the book of John, the Gospel of John, we find this written in John 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we understand that when Jesus said that, he's referring to this instant in the Old Testament uh, where Moses lifted up that brazen serpent. Now, most of the people, including this preacher, uh, most people are not fond of snakes. If the snake's here, I'm there. Simple as that. Somebody said, well, some snakes are good, not in my eyes. Uh, just have no use, no need, no desire to be around snakes. I, I have trouble understanding people who love to be around snakes. I see people carrying them around their neck. I see people have them in their home as pets. What do you do with a pet snake? You can't take it for a walk. It won't bark at you or talk to you or even snuggle up to you. I'd be concerned if it did. But anyway, most people have this, this uh, fear, if you will, of snakes. But think about this. Think about the horror that the Jews in Numbers 21 faced as they had fiery serpents come into the camp and cause death. According to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 9 and 10, these Jews were guilty of two sins that caused these fiery serpents. One was tempting God, and the second one was murmuring against him. And so this morning we want to look at this lesson, and, and we want to make sure that, that we get help from this, that we would not be found to be carrying out either of those that the Jews did in that day. One of the basic principles of soul winning is that a person has to get lost before they can get saved. Very basic principle. What do you mean by that? Well, in order to be saved from our sin and death and hell, a person has to realize they need to be saved. They have to understand they're a sinner and they're on their way to hell unless they come to Christ for salvation. It's been said that before someone can be saved, they must be first lost. This is good advice. The soul winner attempts to use Scripture to show the sinner he is lost. And of course, knowing the terror of the Lord, the soul winner tries to persuade men to come to Christ and to know Christ. I visited with a man last week in the hospital, and an elderly gentleman, and probably on his his last legs, and uh, he had no testimony of salvation, and I tried my, my best to bring him to that place where he, would, where he would understand he's a sinner and that Christ would save him if he'd call upon him. And uh, as much as I talked and as much as I tried to give him Bible verses, just couldn't bring him to that place. It's a sad thing when that happens. In Numbers 21, we find a group of people who have been grievously infested with serpents that cause great discomfort and loss of life. From Deuteronomy 8, verse 15, we learn that these serpents were widespread through the wilderness land. Now, uh, I don't know if you understand this. What, what God did was uh, he, he brought the serpents that were already in the land. He brought them all together there to the camp of the Jews. And uh, they were widespread, the Bible tells us, yet God's protecting hand 
had been with Israel up to this point. Up till now, God protected Israel from these serpents. Now he removes his hand of protection, and the serpents come into the camp. What happens in this chapter that causes God to turn these serpents loose on the Jews? Two words will suffice, tempting and murmuring. It is these twin evils that will hinder our walk with the Lord today as well. A quick glance at Christianity today shows that we're infested with both of these evils, tempting and murmuring. It's time for a change to take place in our thinking. What's the problem here? Well, we find it over and over again, but the children of Israel would become ungrateful. Somebody said this, and I think it's very appropriate here. The foundation of gratitude is the expectation of nothing. The foundation of gratitude is the expectation of nothing. Listen, when you don't expect anything and you get something, you show gratitude. It's when we're expecting something and don't get it that we show ingratitude. Here were these Hebrews wandering, but they were expecting too much. They weren't grateful for what God had already given them. And we find in today's Christianity, too many times we forget all the blessings of God and we focus on our wants and on our disappointments. By virtue of the fact that we have salvation, we already have more than we will ever deserve. If we got what we deserved, we all know we would die and go to hell. God is not the big genie in the sky to give us all that we want. He's not some cosmic Santa Claus who occupies his time by granting all of our desires. No, God is a holy God. He's the father of lights. And from him, all good gifts come down, James tells us in James 1, 17. And just as God rejected the grumbling complaints of Israel, God rejects the grumbling and complaining of Christians today. The grumbling attitude is really just another form of pride. Oh, there's that enemy once again. Probably the greatest enemy we face is our own pride. We begin to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And then we're offended when God doesn't come through for us. God has stated in his word that he resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble in James 4, 6-8. This wilderness experience that these Jews are going through would be a humbling experience for them. Nevertheless, they would learn that God is able to produce his streams in the deserts of their lives. And so the first thing we want to look at today, look and live is our title. And we see the danger of discouragement. The danger of discouragement. Look at verse 4. It says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Let me say this. Discouragement is one of the enemies, the devil's favorite tools. Someone has remarked that if the devil gave up every tool but discouragement, he would still be effective. Discouragement is the surefire way to squelch any revival flame. It renders its victims incapacitated. These people will sometimes even despair of life because they're so discouraged. The discouraged person is ready to quit everything good because of one bad incident that has been magnified by the eye of the flesh. Here's what some people said in the past. Disraeli said this, despair is the conclusion of fools. Boy, what a statement. Despair is the conclusion of fools. 
Let me read this one. <clears throat> With heights of joy in serving my master, I am happily familiar. But to the very depths of despair, such an inward sinking as I cannot describe, I have likewise sunk. Yet I do know that my Redeemer lives, that the battle is sure, that the victory is safe. You'd be surprised who said that. The great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He knew the, dis, the, uh, the difficulties of despair and depression. It's, it's said that he, he fought many bouts with depression. So let's look at number one, the difficulty to be expected in the journey. In verse 4, the Bible tells us these people were discouraged because of the way. Now, what it's talking about there is because their traveling was difficult. And the journey of life is not promised to be easy for us. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Here are these these. Jews apparently were expecting the trip from Egypt to Canaan to be easy. God, however, intended for the journey to strengthen these people. He allowed them to travel through rocky ter terrain. He allowed them to face difficulties and disappointments. To simply avoid these elements would not be true to real life. And may I remind you that in our journey, we will face difficulties and disappointments. But as believers, we have to learn how to deal with them. I said I believe last week or maybe the week before, but it's a true statement. Smooth seas never made a great sailor. That's a good, good proverb, if you will, to remember. Smooth seas never made a great sailor. The children of Israel wanted life to be a bed of ease. But instead, they found that God's miracles did not negate their responsibility. God uses the trials of life to refine us. The trials are for our improvement. Somebody said this, gold does not fear the fire, it welcomes it. I thought that's a pretty, pretty powerful statement. Gold does not fear the fire. It welcomes it. Why does it welcome it? Because the fire is what brings the impurities out of it. And our trials and our tribulations and our difficulties of life, God uses to bring out the impurities in us that we might deal with them. Job said over in Job 23.10, When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So number one, the difficulty to be expected on the journey. And number two, focusing on the difficulties instead of the Father causes discouragement. When we focus on the situation, when we focus on the environment, when we focus on what's going on right in front of us, it causes discouragement. In the passage we've read, we see how we have a classic example, if you will, of how discouragement begins. The journey's difficult. It's hard. And these people are tired. They're weary. There are many people around. The noise at times can be deafening. The little children running around started to become annoying. Animals smell. The quarters were cramped. The food is getting old. On and on we could go. The excuses continue to be offered. After difficult times, the nation has begun to focus on the circumstances instead of the creator. And right there, you have a good recipe for disaster. According to Galatians 6 and verse 9, the Bible says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. You know, understand this. <clears throat> it, 
It's when the easy circumstances or the good circumstances change that discouragement comes. And that's because we, we're always expecting things to be easy and things to be good. Well, as the children of God, we need to keep our focus on the right person. If our eye is constantly on the circumstances, it will only enhance the fear and the frustration. <coughs> that will lead to a breakdown spiritually. Before we realize it, we are discouraged. We become discouraged. And let me say this. Discouragement is contagious. Discouragement spreads very quickly. Discouragement always looks for the opportunity to voice itself as well. Rarely do you have to wonder if someone is discouraged. You know, I was, I was thinking about the, uh, the, the spies that were sent into the promised land to spy out the land. And when they came back, gave a bad report. They said, we can't do this. They gave a discouraging report. Two gave an encouraging report, but the discouraging report won out. And uh, I'm watching the deer run by. Oh, my. The, the discouraged uh, ones won out, and we understand that. The journey is difficult. And the people are becoming discouraged. As children of God, we need to keep our focus on the right person. When we get our focus off the Lord, then it leads to a breakdown spiritually. And before we realize it, we become discouraged. As I said, discouragement is contagious and it spreads quickly. It always looks for the opportunity to voice itself. You know, you don't have to be around a discouraged person very long till you, till you learn they're discouraged. Because that's what's, that's what's heaviest on their heart and first on their lips. And when people come to you with discouragement, it spreads the discouragement. Pretty soon the person that they dump it on becomes discouraged as well. Just like here, discouragement spread through the camp very quickly. And it, it caused Moses to have to stop their traveling, stop the procession to deal with the problem. The discouraged people are preparing to speak, and what they have to say will not be honoring to God. So they were focusing on the difficulties instead of on the Father, and it causes discouragement. Then we see this, the rebellion against authority. In verses 5 through 7 there, Look at those verses. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. They're murmuring not just against Moses, but against the Lord as well. And here's a principle for you. Listen, we all get discouraged from time to time. The thing is, we, we shouldn't stay there. But here's a principle for you. Discouraged people will often say things they later regret. Unfortunately, you, you can't retract your words. We can't take those words and put them back in our mouth. Once they're out there, they're out there. And more importantly, we can't simply blame our speech on the discouragement because the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. When these people were murmuring against the Lord, he didn't look down and say, my, 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 they're just letting off some steam. God viewed it as rebellion. And in his eyes, this great sin is no different from the sin of witchcraft. Since rebellion is a public sin, God's going to have to deal with it publicly. Hold your place there in Numbers and go over to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 15. 
We don't have time for the whole story, but Saul had sinned against the Lord by not doing what he was supposed to do. And then he lied about it. And in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, Samuel's talking to Saul, and Saul uh, didn't do what he was supposed to do according to the instructions of the Lord. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifice, sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. And then it says this, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry, because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Wow. Well, the nation now speaks against God. In verse 5, we read the nation speaks against God. God is the one who has met every need. He's performed the miraculous. He's answered their prayer for deliverance after 400 years of of seeking deliverance. And now these children of Israel are ready to rebel against God. Hmm. They're frustrated. Their journey has become harder than what they anticipated. And this, this only revealed the condition of their hearts. While God may have led Israel out of Egypt, he still needed to get the Egypt out of Israel. I'll say that again. While God may have led Israel out of Egypt, he still has a lot of work to do to get the Egypt out of Israel. And that's what we're seeing here. The rebellion of the heart is borne out in Psalm 78, verse 19. Here's what that psalm says. Yea, they spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? And they certainly learned that he could. Hmm. What a sad day when the creature cries out against the creator. For someone to presume that his ideas and his opinions are greater than God's ways is idolatrous and rebellious to the core. When the spirits of people are down, they are not as guarded in what they say it's at these weak moments that the evil heart of unbelief voices its opinions. It's a sad day when the creature speaks out against the creator. I thought about Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8. Hold your place and go over to Isaiah 64 and verse 8. Something Isaiah said here kind of caught my, my mind, mind's attention. Isaiah 64 and verse 8. But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou our potter, and we are all the work of thy hand. You know, we really need to, to get the picture of what Isaiah is saying here. With the Lord, we are clay. He is the master. He is the potter. The potter does with the clay as the potter desires. We, we have no say in what he does. And we need to understand that, that he's the, he's the master. And we dare not argue against him. It's in the weak moments that we find ourselves doing such. God will not be tolerant of Israel's rebellion. God is going to deal with it very severely. He's going to deal with it very, very uh, quickly. And it looks like right at this point, the streams in the desert might be dried up. But God's not finished yet. So the nation speaks against God, and the nation speaks against God's messenger. 
When the children of Israel finished venting their frustrations against God, they turned to Moses. These people need something tangible to express their rebellion and, uh, or someone to express their rebellion to. And I've said many times, people will often get angry or upset or put out with God, but they can't see him. And so they will look for someone they can see to take it out on. And that's what these people did with Moses. They turned to Moses. They're looking for somebody that they can uh, voice their, their opinions to. And they not only speak against God, but they speak against his man also. This tactic is as old as human history. When Cain became upset with God, he took it out on his brother Abel. When the Jews became upset with the message of God, they stoned Stephen. In our sinful nature, we want to rebel against everything godly and spiritual. I'm going to say that again because it's such a truth. In our sinful nature, the old man, the flesh man, we want to rebel against everything godly and spiritual. Yet, deep down inside, we know that we're no match for the Creator. Therefore, we resort to criticizing the pastor or the Sunday school teacher or the nursery worker. We'll look for someone in a position of leadership and rebel against his authority. And let me remind you, from God's perspective, he will judge the sinful attitude and action. Let me remind you, God places people in authority over us. Let's take the pastor for, for example. Now, I am one, but I don't say this because I am one. I say it because it's biblical. God gives churches pastors. Now, you say, does that mean every pastor has been given to a church by God? No. <laughs> no, as a church seeks God's man, God will give them the man. Many, many times churches aren't seeking God's man. They're just seeking someone. And many times they don't, they don't pray for the right person and they don't look for the right things in the person. They end up with a man that shouldn't even be their pastor. You really believe that? Yes, I do. But at any rate, if a church will sincerely seek God's face about a pastor, he will give them one. And when he does, he expects them to follow that pastor. I believe God raises up Sunday school teachers. And when God raises up a Sunday school teacher, we ought to be willing to place ourselves under his authority. On and on we could go with, with the, the structure that God puts in place. We need to submit ourselves to. Why? Even governmental authority, God says it's ordained of him. And as much as we can, we're supposed to submit to it until it tells us to do something that violates God's word. And then, of course, we obey God rather than men. In our sinful nature, we want to rebel against everything godly and spiritual. God does not excuse the complaints. So they speak against God. They speak against Moses. But God doesn't excuse their complaints. Look at verse 6 of our chapter there. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. So here's a great tragedy. They provoked the Holy One of Israel, and now they receive an angered response. Psalm 78 again bears light on this story, when it says in verse 21, Therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth, so a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel. Vengeance belongs to God and to God alone. Judgment begins at his house first, Peter tells us. God has heard every complaint against himself. He's also heard the complaints against the man that he has selected who's only trying to follow the leadership of God. 
you know, especially in our day and age, it's common to hear parents excuse their children's rebellion. They say, well, he's just going through a stage. Oh, he's a teenager right now. He'll grow out of it. Oh, she's really tired right now. That's why she's acting that way. With God, there are no excuses. For he alone can see the hearts of these individuals. For every action, there is a reaction. That's a law. For every action, there's a reaction. And what you sow, you're going to reap, according to Galatians uh, 6, 7, and 8. For every sinful action, there is a consequence. The statements were ready to become a reality for the children of Israel. For every sinful action, there is a consequence. I've said many times, sin always has a price tag. Hmm. So we see in this case, the judgment God sent was fiery serpents. Now, we're not exactly sure why they're called fiery serpents. Many believe it was probably based on the color of the serpent. Some believe it had to do with the color of the skin after someone was bitten. Or maybe that inflamed, fiery feeling that a person felt once they got bit. I lean towards their color. Whatever the description, the results were the same. They were lethal. Some critics read this story and asked, how can a loving God do that to his people? What they fail to remember is our loving God is also a holy God who is slow to anger, long-suffering, and merciful. The response of the children of Israel is to be expected. They understand right away. It didn't take them long to figure out that this, this punishment, if you will, this agony that they're going through is their own fault. They're in full understanding much people have died because of the serpents. They didn't blame their actions on discouragement. Rather, they confessed their actions as sin in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord, and against thee pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Listen, we could say it this way. God got their attention real fast. Real quick, they understood what the problem was. The fact is this. We today serve a gracious and merciful God. We see that all through the scriptures. In this instance, as soon as the people repent, God is ready to restore them. He doesn't ignore their requests. He doesn't say it's too late. Rather, the judgment had accomplished its end, the humbling of the nation. God had to bring them to that place of humbling themselves, and they did. They had been broken, and because they had now been broken, they could now be restored, and once again, ready to move on for God. And then notice this, the cure for sin. God is concerned about sinners. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, the Bible says. This instance in the Old Testament demonstrates God's willingness to provide a remedy for the deadly poison of sin. It is the same event that Jesus refers to in John 3.15. The construction of this serpent on a pole would take some time, but Moses was obedient to do what God said. 
I would imagine Moses hurried to get this done as soon as he could. He doesn't go about his task grudgingly. He understands that the people's lives depend upon him. Moses himself had no healing power. All he could do was simply make up this brazen serpent, put it on a pole, and hold it up the way the Lord said to. There's a lot of parallels here that we're going to look at in this event in relation to the task of soul winning. Number one, the task of getting the gospel to the unsaved world requires haste. We need to be busy about it. We don't know when people are going to die. We need to be faithful and busy about it. And then the second thing, the messenger has no power to heal. He can only lift up the gospel. We can't save anybody. Listen, people are dying and going to hell. We'd change that if we could, but we can't. All we can do is bring the gospel to them and present it to them and tell them how they can, how they can be saved from hell. But they have to make the decision. We're just tools in God's hands. We're just a vehicle to take the message. Number three, a loving God wanted all people to have the opportunity to look to him. We saw in Peter that he said that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. A loving God wants all people to have opportunity to look to him. And so we need to be busy reaching all people. You know, Mark chapter 16 and verse 15 says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And uh, sadly, I, I see us as desperately failing in that particular area. Oh, we're, we're trying. We're, we're doing what we can do. But as Christianity in a whole, we're failing to do what we're supposed to do. And then this event underscores the truth that God uses human instruments. You know, sometimes people have the idea, I have to go soul winning. The fact is this, it's a privilege to go soul winning. That God would allow us sinful people to be the ones to take that glorious message that changes people's lives and changes people's destiny. We, we ought to be honored that God would let us be a part of his soul-winning ministry. Hmm. Now Moses had been wronged by these people but we don't find any bitterness or malice in Moses. There's no secret joy in Moses' life, no taunting them about touching not God's anointed, and no sinful pride on Moses' part. He's the example of a servant leader. Moses didn't stand back and say, I, I, I told you, I told you. No. He's burdened. He's burdened for what's happening to his people. And he immediately goes to the wounded to tell them the wonderful story of life. His own feelings are insignificant. Sure, he's been done wrong. Sure, they murmured against him and were rebellious towards him. But he goes to tell them the wonderful story of life. His feelings are insignificant. He's not going to let anything hinder his abil God's ability to use him. And boy, there's a, a great lesson there for Christians today. The obedience of God's messenger. Thank God Moses did what he was told to do, just like he was told to do it. Just think about this for a minute. What if Moses would have said, I'm too tired? What if Moses said, I'm not making one, let somebody else do it? What if Moses would have said, well, they rebelled against the Lord. They deserve what they get. I'm thankful that he didn't have that kind of a spirit, and neither should Christians uh, have that kind of a spirit. We ought to be soul winners. 
And then we see this, the response of the people. You know, it's, it's easy to imagine the different responses Moses would have heard as he went through the camp. Maybe somebody near the point of death could have said, Moses says, look, look and live. And they respond this way. Well, that's too easy. I don't doubt that there were some of them that, that died because they said, oh, well, that's too easy. Maybe another could have quipped, I'm just not ready yet. Look and live. I'm just not ready yet. Well, what's it going to take to get you ready? You're about to die. Maybe another one, when Moses said, look and live, maybe another one would say, I have to take care of some things in my life before I look. It reminds me of some people I've talked to about being saved. And I've had a, a few times this response, well, I'm not ready yet. There are some things I, I want to do before I get saved. What they're saying is there are some sins I want to be involved in before I get saved. Listen, it don't work that way. You don't actually choose when you get saved. You get saved when the Holy Spirit deals with your heart and brings you to that place of brokenness and that place of repentance. And you never know if he's going to do that again. Every excuse that a sinner offers to a soul winner is the same type of excuse Moses would have heard. Here's the key. Human nature resists trusting God. Human nature feels like it don't need God. Well, Moses couldn't control the response of the people. All he could do was bring the message, and he did. We don't know the exact numbers. God doesn't give them to us. But we know a good number of people died and another good number of people believed the message and lived. Somebody said this, and this is possible. There could have been Jews scattered across the camp who were too far to actually see the pole. Yet if they simply looked by faith in that direction, they would have lived. It was not the brazen serpent that saved the people. It was God saving the people through faith. The method of salvation in every generation has always been the principle of grace through faith. I think that's a, a pretty, pretty good point there. Listen, Moses is dealing with two million people. And he puts this pole up in the center of the camp with this brazen serpent. But what if somebody way off in the and the fringes of the, of the crowd couldn't quite see, but was willing to look towards. God honors that faith. You know, when I got saved, there were many things I did not understand. But I came by faith, and I looked to Christ by faith as best I knew how. And God honored that and saved my wretched soul. And God will do that for people today. I've said many times, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to get saved. All you have to do is come by faith, believing the message of the Bible and calling out to the Lord Jesus Christ and asking him to save you, as the Bible says we must do. Moses, what a man of God. Think about all he had to put up with. Think about the weight that was on him every day. Think about the eyes that were on him every day. Moses was the leader who was in the trenches, persuading men to trust what God had said. We know from history that he read a few million, led a few million Jews through this wilderness. He must have been persuasive. But more than Moses was persuasive, God was. Well, how do, how do we apply this to us today? Well, here's one application. The idea that God is looking for some people to deliver his message 
to a world that is grumbling and murmuring against him. These people were grumbling and murmuring against God, and yet God sent a man to take this message to them to look and live. And that's what people need to hear today. The simplicity of the gospel, look and live. All people need to hear. And God wants to use us to tell them. Once again, we are the vehicles. We are the, the, the chosen vessels to take the gospel to the lost and dying world. All people need to hear. God wants to use us to tell them. Not all people accept Christ during the first offer. But we need to be committed to seeing them come to Christ. We need to learn the principle of persuasion. Aren't you glad Moses was willing to do what God told him to do? He did it because he was burdened for those people. He didn't want to see them die. And so when God said to do something that didn't make much sense, he was obedient. And because of his obedience, many were able to live. I wonder this morning, have you been obedient to what God told you to do? If you're a believer, you've been told to take the gospel to the lost of the world. If you're a believer, you have a responsibility. Have you lived up to that? If not, why don't you ask God to forgive you and get busy telling people about Jesus, that folks might be saved, that they might look and live, look by faith to Jesus Christ and have eternal life. Father, thank you for Moses and the man of God that he was. Thank you for his obedience. Thank you for this account that you've recorded for us that helps us to understand now might we be agents for you and might we give ourselves to you that you might use us to bring the message to the lost and dying of this world. We pray now that you would bless our morning service. Thank you that we can meet together in the building and we pray that you'd bring a good number out and that your work and your will will be accomplished. And we pray it all and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.